I want to tell you about an avid amateur golfer by the name of David. As you know, golf has been, would be my, my sport. That's one that I enjoy probably playing the most because it involves potentially riding as much as walking. All right, But it is, it is a sport that I've always enjoyed. So David was quite good at golf, played regularly. He had a regular foursome. All right, So for the non-golfers, that means he and three other guys played regularly. But in order to play, he had to drive some distance to get there, and his travel took him over some pretty bumpy roads. That wasn't always an easy trip. And on one particular trip to the golf course, he found himself, as soon as he arrived, having to tee off. Tees up the ball, first hole, and he shanks it. All right, so the golfers know the term, right? I mean, it is a terrible shot. He's so frustrated, he he blames really the ride to the golf course for why he even hit it so poorly in the first place. So he promptly takes another ball, puts it on the tee, and plays a second shot, counting it as his first. Well, the guys who are playing with him are incensed. Why, why did you do that? Who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do that? He said that was a correction shot. That was the term that he had used, a correction shot. Well, they all look at each other confused. They'd never heard of a correction shot. They didn't know of anything about this in the rules, challenging him on the appropriateness of the act and saying, what is this shot called a correction shot? David, thinking on the spot, decided to name it after himself. His name was David Mulligan. I don't know if you've ever heard the term Mulligan. It is a term that comes from the golfing world. By the way, that's one of two possible stories uh, that they track as the origin of the term. Uh, For the golfers in here, you know what a Mulligan is. But even if you don't, it's one of those words that has made its way kind of into the vernacular, right? To to talk about a Mulligan is to talk about a do-over. In fact, it is often the case, I've played many, many rounds of golf in my life, and it is not unusual, even to this day, to step up to the first tee and to hear one of the players say, two off the first. All right, two off the first. What that means is, you get a mulligan on the first drive if you think you need one, a do-over. Mulligans are great things. I mean, to be able to do over, right? What a great idea that you have an opportunity to make right what you did wrong, to somehow try and correct what you did incorrectly. It's, it's kind of something that would be near and dear to the heart of every human, right? The opportunity to do something over again, <laughs> to get a, another shot. We might even would use the phrase to have a second chance at getting it right. In a sense, though there are clearly differences, but in a sense, I would suggest Hosea, this opening prophet of the minor prophets, rather than being just a doom and gloom kind of prophet, rather than just being a man who is preaching judgment and fire and consequences of sin, rather than just being that, I I would say Hosea very much has a message of doing it over. 
Now, it's not quite like a mulligan. In a mulligan, you get to hit a second shot, not be penalized for it. That's not what Israel is going to face. But in a sense, Israel does get another shot. Israel is given the opportunity to be brought back into restored fellowship with God. The message of Hosea is that no, no matter what the sin and rebellion of Israel was, and he lays it out clearly, we will know it, but no matter the sin, God will restore His people back. No matter the rebellion, God will bring them back in redemption. No matter the, the idolatry and the disobedience, God is going to give them an opportunity to come back into fellowship with Him. That's why I think Hosea is such a fitting beginning to the twelve for these minor prophets. It, it is a prophet that we have labeled here, but it's not new to me, the prophet of God's covenant love. So the very first message that God gives to His people through these minor prophets is a message of love. Now tonight we're going to continue our study in this book. Uh, we've looked at a number of features already, and tonight we'll focus primarily on chapter 2. And So we've kind of been in the heart of the content of the book of Hosea. If we, if we go on to the, to the next slide, you kind of see there in your notes, uh, you know, kind of where, where we're going. The minor prophets uh, begin with this, this portrait that Hosea paints for us of an ever-faithful God in spite of an ever-rebellious people. So I think through this prophet, we really do get a glimpse into God's covenant love. And this has, been, this has been our focus, the nature of Israel's sin and the nature of God's promise of redemption. And I, and I think really in Hosea, we find a profound picture of the gospel itself. Now, I've not really mentioned this, but I will tonight, and we'll see this more as we finish up the book uh, and, and you know, as we continue to go through it. Here's how Hosea tracks this primary point. Hosea kind of cycles through three main ideas. You see them outlined for you already in your outline. In other words, the the main part of the outline, one, two, and three. Hosea kind of cycles his way through what are three main parts of his message. God's faithfulness, God's covenant love to his people. He'll keep his promises. At the same time, the nature of Israel's sin and rebellion and the appropriateness of God's judgment against them but not leaving them in judgment, and instead bringing them back in restoration. So these themes of God's love and faithfulness, Israel's uh, rebellion and judgment, and then God's restoration and fulfillment of promises. This this is the cycle that Hosea will go through. He'll take us through this in in kind of ever-expanding detail. And so we've already taken a look at this to some degree in the first chapter. We spent time in chapter 1 over the last few weeks, and and we looked at the setup to the story. Chapter 1 gives us the setup to Hosea, telling us, you know, what what it is that's going to be going on and the unique feature of this particular prophet, And, and that is that God has decided that Hosea will marry an unfaithful woman in order to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. Now, that's a tough call. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things God calls people to do in the Bible. I mean, we know Noah, 
Abraham, right? Go find a land. I'll tell you where to stop. Tells Noah to build a boat. Going to send a massive flood. These are, these are hard messages, right? Tells Moses, go to Egypt. Free my people. These are hard things. I've got to tell you, I think I put Hosea's call right up there with it, right? I mean, it's hard for a different reason, but it is, it is, this is a profound call upon this man. That the nature of his ministry, his prophetic ministry, will be his marriage to Gomer. And that being this illustration of the nature of God's love for Israel, Israel's rebellion against him, and God's restoration. All this is going to play out in Homer's relation, in Hosea's relationship with Gomer. And so chapter 1 lays this out, telling us, God telling Hosea, this is what you're going to do. And he has kids, all right? Uh, only one of them is his, though. So there are three children that were mentioned in chapter 1. And they all are named in such a way that speak to the judgment that God is going to lay down upon Israel for their sin. Only the first child belongs to Hosea. The other two children are the result of Gomer's unfaithfulness. And as we noted, we noted the cycle, even in chapter 1. He, he gives this statement about judgment. Judgment is coming. You, you are no longer my people. There is no mercy for you. You are going to be scattered. And yet he concludes it by laying out this profound promise. Yet, the number will be the number of the number of, of, of the sand on the seashore. In other words, he, he repeats this covenant promise to them that they, they will still be his people and they'll be brought back to that place. They will be called sons of the living God. They, they, they will now be called the people of God and mercy will be shown to them. So, now let's turn our attention to chapter 2. So again, chapters 1 through 3 giving us this first picture uh, of, the, of, of God's covenant love and cycling us through uh, these key ideas. Chapter 2 is going to do a similar kind of thing. But he's going to add on to it. There's going to be a bit more detail here. As we get into the second chapter, it's going to be further details on the rebellion of Israel and God's move to restore her back into fellowship. So now we're going to be able to fill in some blanks here. Following along the same basic pattern that I mentioned just, just there at the beginning, and we'll walk our way then through chapter 2. So, here's, here's how, how he begins. Three features of chapter 2 and 3, really. Uh, and as, as Hosea gets more specific with us on the nature of God's relationship with his people, and by the way, we're going to note as we go through it, we're going to keep in mind, this is what I want you to keep in mind as we study it, Keep in mind that whatever God says about Israel is what Hosea is dealing with, with Gomer. And, and I think there's going to be features of this that are going to be shocking to you, all right? So we'll, 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 we'll see how this goes as, as it unfolds. So three features. Number one, that is the charges of unfaithfulness. The text begins with the charges of unfaithfulness. Notice right off the bat in verse 2, when I say charges, I mean a formal indictment. I mean, I mean the, Hosea is using legal language here, the language of the court in essence. When he says, verse 2, and again, this is really God speaking, bring charges against your mother, bring charges. So the language of bringing charges. You may have a textual note that uses the word contend, and the language of contending is, is like, 
legally bringing somebody to court. So when he opens this way and says, bring charges, he means there has been the breaking of a law, that, that this has been a violation. Something has happened, and now the law needs to be brought to bear. I am taking you to court. Formal charges are being laid against you. And even if you're famous, you're not going to get out of it. All right. In other words, this is a formal sentence against you. You are going to be charged, indicted, convicted, and punished. Notice specifically, though, what is said. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges. That's the rest part of the verse. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. It's really striking language, right? In other words, he's not even going to say, bring charges against my wife. It's almost as if he's talking to the children. Bring charges against your mother. These are the indictments that are coming down against Israel. A relationship that I had with her that has now been broken. It is suggested that this amounts to a divorce decree. I mean, obviously we're talking symbolically, metaphorically of a sense, right? What I mean by that is, I mean, it's that this is the nature of the breaking of the covenant. Israel has abandoned her husband. She's turned her back on God. So she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. And then this, this gets to the kind of the charges part. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born. Make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. In other words, this is what's going to happen. She's committed adultery. She has been unfaithful. Now, when you read in that, you should read in that primarily the sin of idolatry. I think that is what is primarily in mind. We'll see how that tracks out. But that's not to say that idolatry was Israel's only sin. But it is argued, and I think rightfully so, that idolatry is the premier sin. Idolatry is the premier sin. Because every sin is an act of idolatry. It's true for you, too, and for me. Every sin, in some way or another, is an abandonment of the rightful place of God to be glorified in my life. It is the going after of something else. Now, very often that may be myself. It may be my own flesh. It may be my own desires. It may be the offerings of the world. It could be any number of those idols that we might talk about as being modern-day idols. So, so this is the primary concern. And Hosea's words, God's words, really, then to Israel, that she is going to be exposed for who she is. Her, her adultery, her sin is going to be exposed for what it is. And she is going to be laid bare. She's not going to be able to hide from this. She's not going to be able to cover this up. And this is going to result in devastating consequences. Now, notice how he goes on to describe this in verses 4 and 5. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. 
So understand what he means here when he talks about the children. Whenever we hear this language of children, what do we do? We, I mean, our first thought is that the children, that seems really unfair, right? Okay, but he's not using that in, in those terms. What, what he means is if Israel is the mother, that, that is, stands for Israel as a whole. Who are the children? The children are the individuals. In other words, Israel as, as, as a nation produced idolaters. That's what has happened. And so when he he refers to the children, it is referring then to the idolaters among them. So this this is the problem. I will not have mercy on your children. Uh, In other words, there, there is a point at which my mercy does stop and judgment begins. Because they are children of harlotry, and their mother has played the harlot. And the, the, the implication being, they have indulged in the idolatry passed down to them from their mother. So, so it, don't read into this, well, God is going to judge the children for the sins of the mother. It's not that thing, all right? It, it's not following in that strain of thinking. Now, there is language in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments themselves, there is this statement that the sins will be visited upon the children and the children's children. But that's not the way the language is being used here. This is a way of saying that the offspring of Israel will come under God's judgment, all because she has played the, the harlot, which, by the way, is more often than not language directly related to prostitution. In other words, she is giving herself to false gods. And the next phrase, I think suggests that this, this is the case, all right? Notice how it ends in verse 5. Again, God is continuing to lay out the charges of unfaithfulness. And this perhaps is premier. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen my oil, and my drink. In other words, what, what is Israel saying? I'm going to continue to pursue these other gods because it is in fact these other gods who are providing for me. This is the essence of her rebellion. She, she believes that what is really the providential hand of God on her life She believes it is these false gods providing for her. Now, let's stop there for a second and let's track then the story of Homer, of of Gomer and Hosea. And we'll see it again as, as it keeps on going here. Given the fact that Hosea's relationship with Gomer is God's relationship with Israel. At this point, here's what has happened to Gomer. She has abandoned the home. She has gone after other lovers. It is suggested that what Hosea means by this is, in fact, she may now be a temple prostitute. At the, ver- at the very least, she is, she is going from lover to lover. I mean, it's... This is a sordid story, right? I mean, this is, this is not, this is not a, a, a sweet bedtime story. My guess is, you sit down with your grandchildren, 
you're probably not going to tell them the story of Hosea, right? In other words, they probably don't claim, or, hey, tell us the story of Hosea, uh, right? So that's probably not one that you're going to want to pass on quite yet, okay? Some tricky stuff in this. It is, it is sorted. And, and in fact, what is happening? She's going after these other lovers, Gomer is, and she has all of this stuff. She has, she's been provided for. She has food. She has clothing. Uh, she has the fineries of life. She has a place over her head. She thinks her lovers are providing this. Again, if, if Hosea and Gomer are mirroring then God and Israel, Israel is giving credit to her lovers, to these false gods for what has been given to her. This means Gomer is giving credit to these other men that she's gone after to taking care of her. What do we know to be true about God and Israel? Are these other gods providing for Israel? Can false gods provide for you? Anyone? No? No. Right. Okay, that's the answer. All right, no. Because they're false gods. Okay, so they don't exist. So, there's never been a false god that ever provided anything to anybody. Because they're not real. Okay, so who is then providing for Israel? If Israel is going after other lovers and she is being given wine and grain and the fineries of life, who's providing it? God is, right? If Gomer has this stuff, who's providing it? Hosea. I have every reason to believe that Gomer left Hosea, left the kids with Hosea, even though two of them are not his. I mean, I, I can only speculate, and the commentaries only speculate. I mean, we don't really know, because he doesn't say. But here's what's happening. In some form or fashion, Hosea knows where Gomer is. And Hosea, under God's instruction, for a certain amount of time, goes to wherever she is staying perhaps encounters the man that she is staying with and gives her food and clothing, unbeknownst to her. She doesn't know it. And what's this other dude doing? Honey, look what I got for you. Provided by the hands of Hosea. So, this is a vivid illustration, is it not? Because I I don't know that we always think about it in this kind of rather vivid and graphic detail. But whenever I fail to give credit to God for the good things given to me, when I give credit anywhere else, it's as if... It's as if I would be a man and a wife has had an affair and I'm giving goods to that wife and the one she's having the affair with is taking credit for it. So, so when you start putting in this context, I think this starts to make judgment look a little more appropriate than what a lot of people tend to think, right? 
Because what does this mean? God has been greatly patient with Israel. How long has God continued to provide new grain and wine? How long has He continued to provide provision and a place over their head and finery and wool and linen? How long has God done this? He has done this for centuries. What does she do? I'm going to go after my other lovers. Because I think they're the ones who are giving me the good stuff. So, this, this again is, is at the heart of what is the violation of Israel against God, against these charges. Now, now we go on to the second part, and that is the judgments to come. The judgment against unfaithfulness. So, we see the transition with the word therefore in verse 6. So, what's God going to do? Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She'll chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. So, so this is the end game, by the way. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what this looks like. What does it mean when it says God will hedge them in? I, I think this means as God brings the Assyrians down upon Israel. In other words, it is the Assyrians who will come in as the arm of judgment. As the Assyrians come in and perhaps Israel wants to go after these other gods, there will be some form and fashion where God does not allow them access to idolatry. He'll, he- he'll hedge them in. Now notice it, it's not like a hedge of protection like a you know, like, oh, we're all safe and protected. It's a hedge of thorns, right? It, it, it is something challenging and difficult. But at some point, God will keep her from getting access to these false gods in order to bring her to her senses so that she will know it was better. It was better with my first husband. And I can only assume that this is mirrored in Hosea's relationship with Gomer, that there will be a point at which then Hosea takes some action, and she will try and find others to take care of her, and they will not be found. She will not find another. And by the way, by the time we get to chapter 3, you know where we find, uh, where we find Gomer? On the auction block. Being auctioned off like cattle. So at some point what happens to her is she no longer has a home to go to. She no longer has someone to care for her or pretend to care for her. At that point it is suggested she has become nothing more than a common slave. So her lot has changed and it is at that point. You almost hear this and what do you think of? What New Testament parable do you think of? Anybody want to? Sounds kind of like the prodigal son, right? In other words, now, now, now you're left to the consequences of your sin. God, God, is, God is in essence, and I'll get, get to this in just a minute, God in essence is saying, all right, so the consequences of your sin are now going to be brought to bear upon you. You will try and find some kind of support through these other avenues, and it will not be granted to you. And Then you'll find yourself in a position where you see things clearly. Isn't it interesting how when you hit the bottom, you often can see clearly? We like to say, you know, when we get to the top of the mountain, we can see. But it's interesting, there's kind of a spiritual metaphor here. When you hit rock bottom, sometimes that gives real clarity to life. And this is what is going to happen with Israel. It's what's going to happen with Gomer. And, and here's, the, here's the real indictment here in verse 8. 
For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. In other words, here's, here's, this adds a bit to this. It's not just that Israel was going after these false gods and attributing their provision to these false gods. They were then taking that provision and returning it to Baal as a sacrifice, as an offering unto him, an offering of gratitude unto this false god, taking the very things God had given and then turning right around and using them in an act of idolatry, which I think, by the way, is a feature of idolatry that we don't often stress. I mean, we understand idolatry is fashioning another god, right? Fashioning for, for ourselves another god who's not the one true god, but then do we take it a step further and then recognize then whatever provision that we have that we then use in service to our false gods is doubling down on the idolatry. It's two forms of false worship. The first is, is assuming there's another God worthy of such affection. And the second then is taking what only God can give to me and using it in service to a false God. This is, how, this is why idolatry is such a profoundly offensive act against God. I, when I read this, I then immediately thought about a story that we refer to regularly in the Old Testament. Is this not exactly what Israel did when she came out of Egypt? She finds herself at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain getting all the law and commandments and all that good stuff. And what are they doing? They are making the golden calf, right? We've referred to this story more than once. And you may recall the manner in which they made the gold calf. They went around and collected what from one another? Gold. Is there gold lying around in the desert? Where do they get the gold from? The Egyptians, right? Because God told Moses, before he ever stepped foot in Egypt, you're going to go to Egypt, you're going to bring my people out, and I'm going to give to you the resources of the Egyptians when you leave. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. Those folks are so glad to see the Israelites go. They're giving them stuff, including silver and gold. And what do they do? Probably just a few months later, it's probably just a few months between leaving Egypt and Mount Sinai, and they're taking the very gold that God in His providence had given to them, and they are fashioning for themselves this golden calf. And you go back and you read the story of the golden calf, and included in this is a very specific statement. Aaron stands there with the golden calf and says, This is now your God. This is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's exactly what God means here. They didn't even know I mean, they did, but then they didn't, right? They did, but then they didn't. What's been provided to them has come from God. And instead, what are they doing? They're taking that which had been given by God, and they're giving it to Baal. 
Now, then he goes on to lay out the further judgments. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and my, my, and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now, I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. So, by the way, this is another feature of the rank idolatry here. They're taking what had been given to them by God and using it in worship to Baal, all the while following the ritual calendar of the Old Testament. In other words, two spouses. That's what they're trying to do. Two spouses. Baal and God. I'm going to give worship to Baal, but, I, you know, I mean, who wouldn't like feast days and new moons and Sabbaths? They got days off for that, right? Yeah, let's keep doing that part. Let's do the part where we eat food for seven days. Yeah, let's do that one, okay? Whole obedience thing, not so much, but let's do the good stuff. So that's what they kept doing. And he says, I'm, I'm going to cause all of that to cease. And then he goes on to say, and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given to me, so I'll make them a forest. And the beasts of the field shall eat them. I'll punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. So again, this is the nature of the judgment. God is going to let her go. He's going to keep her, whatever form and fashion, from her idolatries. But at the same time, He is then going to also remove His providence, in a sense. He's going to take away from her what He was providing for her. No no, no longer is she going to reap the benefits of God's grace and mercy. She's she's going to become destitute. Now, the way this will play itself out will be when Assyria comes in. And this is what conquering armies tended to do. In fact, it's not all that common, probably even in a lot of situations in the modern world. They burned it down. They burned it down. They set a flame to the fig trees and the vineyards. By the way, the Babylonians do the same thing in Jerusalem and Judah, the southern half uh, of the divided kingdom. They do the same thing. The same thing happens. So, so all of this that happens, they are then left exposed and with nothing. In fact, they are then going to be scattered. And, and so this, this, is what, this is what the judgment will be. Now, now, Hosea will get more into this in the rest of the book. But, but again, he's, he's expanding out, giving us an ever-increasing detail on this cycle that he is describing as the nature of God's relationship with Israel. And again, that, that last phrase, she, me, she, forgot. She went after her lovers. And that there's, there's almost irony in that. Here she is going after that which does not exist and forgetting the one and only God that does. And by forgot, I mean, he's not being literal. Like, she doesn't have, you know, she doesn't have memory problems. It's not like she literally forgot. It's, the, it's a worse kind of forgetting. She knows that who God is. She knows she doesn't care. So now she's been given over to her sin, and this is having its full consequences. And then you have the last one. We'll touch on it, and then we'll, we'll get back into it next week. 
Then we have the restoration after unfaithfulness. So we saw the same kind of thing in chapter 1. We have all these, these strong statements where you have these kids being named, and the names of the kids then being prophetic statements about judgment to come. You'll be scattered. You'll be no mercy and not my people. And then he comes right back at the end and says, but the day will come when I will gather you to this place and you will be my people and, and I will be your God and you will, you will have mercy. So notice what he says in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. So again, it's a 180. I mean, it's such a striking change of phraseology and language uh, you know, from, from all of this, I'll destroy her vines and her fig trees. But then I will woo her back. I will go after her again, and you cannot miss the intimacy of this language. I, I will restore her back into fellowship with me. I will speak words of comfort. Let, uh, I, I, I will speak sweet nothings into her ear. I, I mean, in other, in other words, I, I will speak tenderly to her lovingly to her. And this language, the valley of Achor, is a door of hope. The valley of Achor was the place where Israel suffered a huge defeat after, after Israel had gone into the promised land uh, and after uh, they, had, they had won a great battle. You may recall a guy named Achan took some of the goods and kept them for himself. God had forbidden that. And so when the people then in their pride thought, oh, we got one victory, let's go up now against Ai. A much smaller, much more primitive group of people. And they got whooped. The valley of Achor then often stood for them as, here's what it looks like when you disobey God, when your pride gets in the way, when you think you can do things your own way. It it became a place of sin and uh, a place of humiliation. And God says, I'll even even reverse that. That, that which was this, this valley of humiliation, now that will become even a door of hope. And you'll sing. It'll be like the old days. In fact, it'll be like the days we got engaged. That, that's kind of the language that I hear, right? It'll be like the days we got engaged. The days when it was, when it was still sweet and, and good and not the place where it got to here. That place where you really believed I was your God and you were my people. We'll, we'll get back to that place. Now, Hosea is going to go on. God's going to go on and speak here for some very profound words. We'll get to those next week. And then he will illustrate it with what one commentator calls the greatest chapter in the Bible. If I were to ask you, what's the greatest chapter in the Bible? Hosea 3, anyone? Is that on your list? Is that on your top 1,000 of chapters? Uh, Probably not, right? And now you're going to go home and read it. And you're going to read it and you're going to think, 
Huh. Really? So who is that guy? Is that one of the guys we need to avoid? Well, no, no, because I recommended his commentary to you, all right? So no. No, it, it, it will, we'll see how, how we have this profound picture of the gospel itself contained for us, even in something like that. And so, uh, so next week, we'll continue our walk through the book of Hosea. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gathering us tonight. Thank you for your word. Uh, again, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be with, with your people God, we can't help but, uh, but then think about your goodness toward us uh, as we think about your relationship with Israel and how she so often gave credit elsewhere. Father, may we not fall into the same sin. Uh, may, may we not allow uh, the idols that clamor for our attention to actually gain our attention. Father, may we give ourselves in, in, in obedience to you and, and trusting you and worshiping and glorifying you. We thank you for the week that lays out before us. We, by faith, trust you to lead and to guide us. And we pray, God, that you would use us as you see fit and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.